Welcome to another edition of the Bighorn Podcast with interesting people and their fascinating stories. This episode is brought to you by Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers, a member of our community for over 70 years. This is Marty Lockman, and our guest today is Dr. Hugh Greenway, chairman of the Bighorn Mose and Dermatology Center at Scripps Clinic, and a Bighorn member since 1999. Hugh's story starts in Athens, Georgia. Hugh, could you take it over from here? Yeah, I was born in Athens, Georgia. My dad uh, was in college. He had just returned from World War II and was back in school like a number of other young Americans who had fought in World War II and were back getting their education under the GI Bill. Um, after graduation, my dad took a job with General Motors in Atlanta, and we moved to Decatur, which is part of Atlanta where I grew up. I was the oldest of five children. Um, they had a wonderful childhood growing up in a happy American neighborhood. Well, as you're growing up, I'm sure that there were a, a bunch of things that, as all of our uh, people that have been interviewed, you start working just out of necessity. And what were some of those jobs? Um, well, I started, I was a paper carrier. I had a paper route, you know, with a bicycle like we did in those days uh, for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Um, and through papers for a number of years, I was actually carrier of the year one year. So I had a full spray spread with me and one of the dogs in the neighborhood that uh, in the paper route. So that was a lot of fun. Um, I had an uncle that had a pharmacy, so I actually worked in a pharmacy, which started to expose me to medicine somewhat. Um, my dad's best friend um, was a physician. He was also the scoutmaster of the Boy Scout troop that I joined, and I became active in a number of activities in the community, in the church, and other, but the Boy Scouts was one that uh, had a lot of interest to me. And became an Eagle Scout in the process. I was very fortunate. I, I did uh, attain the rank of Eagle Scout and uh, met a lot of wonderful people. Uh, my dad assisted. He was an assistant scoutmaster. Um, my dad had worked, continued to work full-time. He'd been injured uh, in World War II and had a number of medical problems, um, Interesting enough, so much so that he required a, a cadaver renal transplant when I was a teenager, and that worked for a few years, and then subsequently had to go back on dialysis. And we had an interesting family dynamics because we all, the children, the five of us, got tested uh, to see if we were donors or acceptable to be a cadaver, a living renal donor. And my dad had not wanted to talk at this about this at all with the first transplant. But over the subsequent years, uh, he actually did listen to us. And of the five kids, three of us were a perfect match for my dad. And after much family discussion with the medical community also, um, he did take a living renal transplant from my brother. Uh, he chose my brother because my brother was the youngest, but mostly because he was the only one that wasn't married in those days. Well, that's, that's a big factor, but a bunch of these decisions now, people that you knew, people that you met, your father's condition, this all really brings you to not necessarily seeing this as a career path, but your interest in medicine, I'm sure, had a lot to do with what was going on at that time in your own family. Oh, absolutely. The, the number of medical conditions and the severity and the status of, of that in those days. And 
Then also, like I said, my dad's best friend was a physician, and so he and I spent a lot of time together, both in the Boy Scouts and in other organizations in, in Atlanta. Now, you're going to high school. I'm sure you're. it's a normal upbringing in high school and going through the stuff that we all do at that time. Take us through that part of your life. Um, well, I was focused in high school. I played some sports, but wasn't really big enough to play uh, perhaps some of the larger sports. And I was working quite a bit, too, and it's hard to do both. Um, but I had an, an excellent uh, high school uh, time and really enjoyed that, uh, focused more on the sciences with doing what I needed to do in order to be uh, accepted in a science program in college. And, and two, I would think with, with having to work, going to school, this interest in medicine, uh, you also learned a great work ethic because it's not just enough to, to know that you want to do these things, but you have to have the work ethic that allows you to get to that point. You do have to have work ethic and put in the amount of time and not only have the abilities, let's say, but it's a, you learn very quickly that you have to put in the effort. And there's certain disciplines that we learn at a young age that also help us because if those disciplines, is, from my understanding of my own life, that if those disciplines aren't learned, it's tough to find out later on what you have to go back to. It is. The habits, I think, that we learn early on stay with us, somewhat like the golf swings. Once you've got that down pat, you know, the muscle memory and things stay with you. So now you go through high school and you're going to be off to college, not really off to college because it's University of Georgia is where you end up going. Yeah, the University of Georgia is about 60 miles from Atlanta, um, and I was accepted there in their pre-med program. But I was also accepted at Georgia Tech, which is in Atlanta, and as you know, there's a quite rivalry, as one would expect, in a state. Uh, my next-door neighbor was actually a professor at Tech. Um, but I was the oldest grandson of the Greenway family in those days, and uh, everyone had gone to Georgia. I had an uncle that played football in Georgia. I sort of expected that I might at least consider going there, and in, in reality, they had a better pre-med program, and again, that's what I was sort of interested in. Now, your dad, he succumbs at a relatively young age. Uh, unfortunately, my dad died at age 62 of uh, surgical complications of other procedures. Um, so yes, he did die at a young age. It's a close-knit family. Uh, you're, you finished college. 1970, I guess, is yes. around the time that you finished college. Uh, what goes on after college? Well, again, I'd focused on being a physician, a medical career. So during college, that was sort of our gig. I was with the group that was in pre-med. And we had all the sciences that we took and all these other things. And, and while we participated in college activities and some of the parties and things, we really were focused on what we needed to do to get to that next step, which was medical school. So I applied and was accepted, and it started at the Medical College of Georgia, which is in Augusta, Georgia. When you're with a group of guys that all enjoy this, isn't that helpful as far as, I mean, you're a team looking towards a common goal. Yeah, you are a team looking toward a common goal. And interestingly enough, and in, in actually in my third year in medical school, one of our uh, psychiatrists uh, actually gave, gave a lecture to us that a lot of us are very similar in terms of our traits, our work ethics, and our characteristics because we all sort of had similar type goals and had come through similar experiences as perhaps as I described, where you have to focus on that goal in order to be able to achieve that. And when you have a support system among a group, I would think that the ability to share those experiences 
can be very helpful. Oh, very much so. Uh, we did have fraternities in medical school, and we had four of them. And uh, we had one that was um, quite active, and I was actually <laughs> president of that one, let's say. So we all had houses off the campus, and we'd have each fraternity would have a party once a year, and ours was the toga party. So that was, was quite interesting. And I actually had some interest in politics in those days. Uh, Sam Nunn, who became a senator of Georgia, was just at, down at the medical school one day, and I said, would you like to come speak at a fraternity house? He said, sure, I'd love to come. So he came, and we had a party, and we invited the deans and the president of the school, and so it was a wonderful activity. And the next month when we were at the fraternity house meeting, the guy said, okay, uh, what are you going to do next? I said, I don't know. I'll think about it. And so I called the governor's office, Lester Maddox, which an interesting individual, was the governor in those days, and he actually accepted and came. It was the only function we'd ever had at the fraternity house where there was no alcohol, of course. Um, but it was quite an interesting thing. Subsequently, I was asked, now what are you going to do? I thought, well, I don't have a clue, but I thought, well, I'll call the senior senator, Herman Talmadge whose father had built the hospital in Augusta and it was named the Talmadge Memorial Hospital. It subsequently turned out the school had been inviting him for two years to come dedicate a new wing and he turned him down, but he accepted to come to our fraternity house, which was, again, interesting. The president of the medical school called me in and said, I understand you're gonna have Senator Talmadge. And I said, yes, sir. And he said, you suppose we could borrow him? And I said, Whatever works for the senator and you works fine for me. So he came. That one was a little testy because everybody wanted to come. All the deans, all the president, you know, because it was such a big deal. Because of the others and because he was the senior senator. So at our fraternity meeting, the guys all got together and said, well, we can't have everybody. It's just not enough. So if you had received one of our two previous invitations, if you've been on the list before, and you didn't respond at all. You didn't say yes, you didn't say no. Then you weren't gonna get an invitation, which was kind of normal. The president of the medical school called me in and said, uh, Hugh, we need to talk again. I said, great. So I went in, he said, everything's all set. Thanks for inviting me, I'm included. Um, there seems to be one problem though. I said, really? He said, yeah, the dean of nursing did not get an invitation. <laughs> And I said, uh, yes, sir, I understand that. And he said, that's a real problem and a challenge for me. And I said, well, this is what we did. And if you didn't respond to our previous two invitations, you were not going to get one to this event. And he said, that's a real problem for me. And I said, yes, sir, I understand. And it's a good thing that our event is being held uh, on private property off campus because your dean of nursing is not going to get an invitation. And she didn't. Um, but we had a wonderful event, and so um, that sort of sticks in my mind a little bit. You know, uh, we're all very busy people, and sometimes uh, we forget about things. And it's important to pay attention to all the details. Well, and there's consequences for our actions but or lack of action, always, whatever the case may always. be. Always. Now, so politics, you entertained, did you, for some uh, at least short well, period of time? I just enjoyed that arena. And Colleen and Dex, my wife Colleen says, if we'd stayed in Georgia, I would have probably been more involved in a, in a number of those things. A little bit later on, after medical school, I was an intern there, and I'd, 
eventually ended up practicing somewhat back in Atlanta uh, in the military and was in the congressional district of a physician, Larry McDonald. He and his brother and father were all urologists. Larry got interested in government and why things didn't change and stuff. And so he became a representative and we supported him. And unfortunately, he was on the Korean airliner flight that the Russians shot down. And later on, uh, Colleen's parents from Montana had never been to Washington, D.C. And we took them to Washington, D.C. And we did a tour of the White House and everything. And it was the day the senators were voting on the Panama Canal with a turn it back over to Panama. And so they had seats to watch and everything. And so... I just went over to see Senator Talmadge, who I'd gotten to know quite well. And he said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I cut my wife's pants. Oh, yeah. He said, and he turned to his aide, and he said, go put them in my private box. And here's two little people from Montana, Colleen's parents, who'd never been to Washington, D.C., and all of a sudden they're sitting in one of the senior senator's boxes watching the conversion of the Panama Canal. So I did have an interest, but medicine was my passion. And so I couldn't do anything that was going to interfere with that. Subsequently finished medical school early, actually, and had the opportunity to serve in a medical mission hospital in West Africa, uh, which was a whole nother unique experience. Well, first of all, given the present situation of our politics, I think I uh, speak for pretty much everybody, we would love to have you as an option <laughs> <laughs> in our present situation, but we're happy that you chose medicine, too. That's think, for sure. I think I'm happy I chose medicine also. That's, so you went to Ghana. Is that where yeah. you did this medical missionary work? Yeah, we'd known a number of the physicians, and it was actually a physician there who lost a child to a snake bite. And came home for a year, and so they were looking for people to fill in, and I'd finished school early and had six months that I went over and essentially filled in for a general surgeon in a hospital in Nglergu, Ghana, which in those days was 100 miles up a dirt road in northern Ghana. It was an excellent hospital facility compound. It had 120 beds. Our census was 240 because you had a bed of floor, a bed of floor, a bed of floor, and it was a place that you just saw things that you didn't see in America. I mean, we'd, the first night I was on call, because we had three doctors, and, and the first night I was on call, I had three children die. And I thought, boy, um, what am I doing here? What am I doing? And so I sat down with the other two doctors the next morning and said, can we go through these three cases? And can you review what I did and make sure, and you know, all this stuff? And they did, and they said, Hugh, um, two to three kids die every night. So that's just the way things are here. Um, and these were complications of malaria and other tropical diseases that we didn't see. And in that environment, the focus in the family was on the father, because the father was the breadwinner, and then the mother, and then the children. And at least in those days, the focus was, well, children can be replaced. So the family focus wasn't as much. Um, but it was an, an excellent facility. It provided excellent care for that area. And it was a tremendous influence on me in my life because I saw a number of things that I would never see again. Is this a normal progression in medicine at that time to do missionary work, to go someplace like this? Because it seems to me the experience that you have is an experience that, you, as you said, you couldn't have here in the States. Right. 
This one was a little bit unusual because of the length of it and the breadth of it. But in medicine today, we actually do try and get our younger physicians into different environments so they can see what's going on in the world, especially in the world today, because diseases can travel on airplanes and things. And so we all do have to be aware. And I think it provides an education. So it certainly did for me. And it's something we now encourage for all of our younger physicians. I would think, I mean, again, I wasn't aware of it, but that certainly prepares you for almost anything that experienced like that? Well, six months there just made the rest of my training really somewhat pale in comparison in terms of the amount of work and the work ethic and thing. And and it kind of opened some doors for me and interest in certain areas of medicine. I had a gentleman come in who had a huge cancer of his lower lip and chin. I really did not have anything to offer him because of the size of the tumor It was essentially like a grapefruit. And the location of it and the facilities that we had. We had an operating room and we did a number of surgeries, but this was going to be a really large, hard one. And so I just said, I I don't think we can help you. And, And a couple hours later, the guy was back again. Then he came back a third time just before we closed. And, and we just didn't have the resources at that hospital. And, when I first got there, if you wanted to order something they didn't have, they would ask you, they'd sure, sure, we'll, we'll get that for you. Now, you need to understand that it's going to take us a year to get it. And you're not going to be here in a year, but if you think the next doctor is going to need it like you need it, then we'll get it. But anyway, with this young man, I ended up buying him a bus ticket to go to the big center down in Accra. I'm I'm sure he never made it, but it actually did make a huge impact on me very early on in my career. Now, after this missionary work, is that when you joined the service? Well, I I came back and I did an internship at the Medical College of Georgia under family practice. Uh, I hadn't quite figured out exactly what I wanted to do yet. And to me, A family physician and internist is probably the hardest job in medicine because it's so broad and there's so much that you need to know, but it's also the most rewarding because you get very close to your patients and they become family and you become family. So I came back and did an internship, um, and then I got a letter saying I was going with the Marine Corps in Okinawa, and I thought, ah, there must be somebody else with my name. In medical school, uh, we had fraternity advisors and the advisor of our fraternity was the chairman of surgery at the VA hospital. And so he got us all scholarships in the Navy our senior year. So we had lots of money. We flew all over the place, got all these goes bases and all this. And, and we all thought, well, some of you are somewhere, we'll all end up in Hawaii together and we'll all <laughs> visit and that sort of thing. And I get this letter, and sure enough, it's for me to go be a Navy physician with the Marine Corps. And actually, I, I kind of knew the Marines were part of the Navy, but, you know, on TV, you see the ad about join the Navy, Air Force, Marine. <laughs> and so that's when I really learned. So I came to San Diego. We had a two-week indoctrination in Coronado. There were 150 of us physicians. Vietnam had just ended. Eight of us were going to Okinawa. And that's as far as somebody could go in those days. So the eight of us sort of thought we might as well just spend the time on the beach um, whereas everybody else, my roommate was actually going as a dermatologist to Long Beach. So we had our introduction. That's my first introduction to San Diego and the Navy. And then I ended up being in Okinawa for, for 13 months assigned with the United States Marine Corps. 
And that that San Diego connection continues pretty much through your life. The San Diego connection continued, yes. But now you're going off to Okinawa. Is this, again, your life, we talk about these twists and turns, but this was unexpected. I mean, you said, okay, maybe somewhere down the line, but now all of a sudden you're going to Okinawa. What's your mindset? Uh, certainly the timing was unexpected for me. But, you know, I, a lot of my family had been in the military, so I actually had very positive feelings about the military. I was single, you know, um, so it was, it, it, was, it was all good, interesting in travel. I'd, you know, I didn't know anything about Okinawa um, except what I'd heard a little bit. And um, so it was just, I just looked at it as an, an interesting experience that hopefully we could make both learn something and make the best of and contribute. Well, along with some personal changes in your life when you go over uh, there, what about the medical aspect of it first? What were you? What, what sort of practice? What sort of things were you doing when you were over there? Yeah, the Marine Corps had several bases there. There was a large Army hospital and a large Air Force base, and then the Marines um, had uh, areas where they had both uh, an aviation community. They had a heavy tank type community, or armor as they call it, and then they had infantry at different bases. They would like to have one doctor at each base and take care of people, but we didn't have enough physicians in those days, so we actually kind of rotated around. Uh, we had a 25-bed hospital at the northern end of Okinawa, and so that's the one that, that we staffed and we took care of patients. And um, you have a young, healthy group, basically, of in those days, mainly men. We had some ladies. Um, but they're an interesting group because they're ready to go to war this afternoon. And that's what we, tra that's what we would train them for. We keep 20,000 Westpac, 20,000 over in the med. Um, and they're sort of the first line of defense. And they're ready to go this afternoon, tonight, tomorrow. So there's sort of a mindset that they all have, which is an, an interesting mindset. And, and our job was to help take care of these people and keep them ready. And if they had problems, to deal with those. Okay. And... Um now, you're there. Um, the next step in your life, not only your medical life, um, is this you meet Colleen? Yeah, um, had a wonderful experience. Um, as I said, we had a small hospital, so we took care of small trauma and things. But if there's everything, anything really, really big, you, you took the patient down to the Army Hospital. So one evening or a night, I had a Marine that had been really injured and needed more than we had. So we actually took him in a helicopter down to the Army Hospital, and there was this nice little nurse that ran the emergency room at night named Colleen that um, we sort of hit it off, and then things just sort of developed. So as these things developed, you're, st you're still over there. How long were you there? Um, well, my tour there was 13 months, but being assigned with the Marine Corps, Marines got deployed to various locations. So I had the opportunity to deploy to the Philippines and also to Mount Fuji, which is the cold weather training place, up a third of the way up Mount Fuji and also up into Korea. So they would go with the troops or they would fly us on. I learned some things very quickly, one of which was about my Jeep. Uh, they would give us a jeep, and if we were going to be deployed, the Marines would get, you, know, you go on Navy transport, that it, it was very important for my jeep to be parked next to the commanding officer's jeep. And the reason for that is the commanding officer's jeep was always the last one on, but the first one off. And that would mean my jeep would be the second one off, so I didn't have to sit on the beach waiting on 
uh, transportation and stuff. But the corpsmen, the individuals, I was very impressed with the fact the Marine Corps will keep a Jeep for many, many years, whereas later I was an Air Force base and you'd want a new one every year. But so I think the taxpayer really gets a lot out of its military, but gets an exceptional value out of the Marine Corps. And this background that you have from this particular time, how do you look back on this as molding you for the future, not just medically in your medical profession, but also just as a, as a person? I think that that it was a very positive experience and added to my life an awareness of we're all products of our lineage and our environment, and that's what helps develop us. Um, there's a new movie that's coming out, or just Midway, or a remake of an old movie, and, and um, so being with the active duty military and seeing those people and being on active duty for a number of years, I think, gave me both an awareness and an appreciation. Um, in San Diego, we have a carrier, the Midway, named after the battle, and, and we would go down once a year when they would have a ceremony. Um, and as part of that anniversary ceremony, they would have aviators from different squadrons that had been in the battle of Midway come up and speak. And the first time you're there and you hear this, it's amazing because each of the speakers, their story is similar or the same. And it's that, that I was in Squadron 12. We had 14 aircraft. I was the only one that came back. Or I was in Squadron 17. We had, you know, 22 aircraft and only two of us came back. So it gave me an awareness for America and something I think that still allows me to appreciate where we are and who takes care of us. I agree. And, and I guess it's not, this is not political, but I think that that sort of experience for every American, and again, whether it's any kind of public service, and certainly being in the armed forces is the ultimate public service, but it seems to me that that sort of experience would do everybody well in this world that we live in right now, to have a greater appreciation of the people that give us the liberties and rights that we have. Absolutely. I, my personal feeling is I think that all young people should be allowed to contribute to the country for a year or two, whether it's in the military, whether it's uh, in a fire brigade or doing something where you're giving back, because I think that even though you are taking time out of your life and you're giving, you get so much more in return. Absolutely. And again, I think that there is, again, it's, you just have a greater appreciation for the country we live in, too, and the abilities and the, and the things that we have. Absolutely. Okay, so now, uh, is this relationship developing during this period of time? Um, yes, this relationship is developing during this period of time. Um, she's very busy. She has to run the emergency room of a big Army hospital, and it's a busy, busy place. I'm very busy um, taking care of Marines and deploying around, but we get off together and we go down to the Philippines, and then she gets orders to leave early. Early, well, her tour's up. She'd been on a tour, and so I offered to take her to the airport. This is a story perhaps I'm not quite as proud of, as, but she loves to tell it, so I'll tell it. But, so I offered to take her to the, the airport as she's going back. She's going to be um, uh, head nurse of the uh, emergency room at Letterman Army Hospital in San Francisco. So I take her to lunch, which is great, and then I take her to the airport and wish her well. And 
Unfortunately, what I did not do, I did not ask her to marry me at that time. And she was ready. She had had her nails done and everything. And so, as I understand it, she was seated next to a Catholic priest on the flight, and uh, he had to comfort her quite a bit because she was worried that perhaps our relationship wouldn't continue. But it did, and I received orders. I had the opportunity. I'd kind of gotten interested in aviation a little bit with the Marines, so I actually went to uh, Pensacola to flight school for the uh, physicians, just a physician group to fill in it, to sit in the role of a flight surgeon. And so she went to California and I went to Florida. Although I uh, was there and then I was assigned to Atlanta. There's a Naval Air Station Atlanta. It's actually Dobbins Air Force Base, Naval Air Station. It has uh, an Air Force contingent, uh, Navy contingent, Marines, and there's two huge Lockheed plants right there. And that's where the real work was done. That's why the, every airplane in the world is stationed there. And so I went there as the uh, flight surgeon. Had to be there standing by the runway if the president landed. And Jimmy Carter was the president in those days. So if he was in town, I was aboard that base. But on weekends, I would somehow catch a hop almost every weekend to somewhere in California so I could see this young lady. And this goes on for... How long? This goes on for a year and a half or so, and um, then we meet in San Francisco and go to the top of the mark, and I ask her to marry me. And And she said it's about time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And uh, then she said, when? And I said, well, you know, I hadn't really got that far in advance yet. (laughs) And she said, well, I get out of the Army the first week of May, so why don't we get married like the second or third week of May? We got married and came back to Atlanta, and... Um, I had worked a little bit um, in addition to my Navy career. I had a few extra uh, assignments or jobs working in emergency rooms and things. And uh, she was a little agitated, as I would think anyone would be, because she said, um, after our honeymoon, I learned that you work seven days a week, five nights a week, and you had a job at lunch. And so I kind of had to, well, but you have to understand, before this time I was single, and so, you know, I had all this time, and I loved medicine, I'd worked emergency rooms and things, so we had to shed some of those, but we kept one. Um, there was a, the poorest white clinic in Atlanta is Cabbage Town, it's right next to Reynolds Town, which is the poorest black clinic, and interestingly enough, the old scoutmaster, the physician, the allergist, who had been my dad's best friend, uh, was still practicing, um, and we worked in a free clinic every Tuesday night in Cabbage Town. Um, it was um, a very interesting experience because the uh, the community, um, anybody who had up any get up and go had got up and gone, so you were left with this group that perhaps wasn't as motivated as others. And so we I participated in a free clinic there on Tuesday nights, and Colleen. Um, and being a nurse would take the patient in the room and get, try and get the history and stuff and often was frustrated because of the local dialect. And I'd walk in and come back out. This kid's got an ear infection. He says, I was in there 20 minutes. How did you know that? Well, growing up in the South was a little bit different. So we were uh, there and had a wonderful career there. I, uh, again, loved flying. Um, had a number of aircraft from little helicopters to the C-5s and everything. You know, if it has two seats in it, the doctor can go. And 
And uh, in those days, the pilots always wanted to justify a trip. You know, if you can justify a trip, you can get the gas and stuff. So uh, I was often asked, didn't I need to go to a Navy hospital somewhere in the world? Um, so we'd often go to Florida, and one of my favorite aircraft was a TA-4. The A-4, like Vince Dinelli flew, um, because they had two seats in it. And if you had two seats, they let you fly and stuff. So I uh, got very interested in aviation, but knew I couldn't do that all of my career. Um, I did take the family practice boards. I still used my time in the emergency room to develop my career in that area. And, and the American Board of Family Practice had its first exam in 1978. And I was able to take that and became board certified. And one of the reasons I took it, I was working in emergency rooms and they said, what type of board certification do you have? And I didn't have any in those days. None of us did in, in emergency rooms. So I took that and passed that. Was very interested in family practice, uh, again, along with dermatology. And as you talk about turns and twists in life, uh, one of my best friends in medical school actually was practicing in North Georgia in a community out north of Athens where both my parents had grown up and he'd gone into practice, and I actually took Colleen up to this town, and we met. She got to meet the doctor that delivered. My mother was actually hanging around. So uh, Rick had really wanted us to come up and go into practice, and we'd looked at that. And then one day I got a phone call when I was still in the Navy at Dobbins, Naval Air Station in Atlanta, and it was Rick. And he said, you know, he said, um, I think I'll come out to Atlanta tomorrow. I said, really? Yeah. He said, yeah, I'm going to go over to Emory, Emory University Medical Center. He said, you know, I thought I had the flu. And then he said, you know, I thought, didn't get any better. And then he said, ah, I thought maybe it was hepatitis. Hepatitis is a, a disease of the liver, and it's something that uh, physicians probably have more exposure to because everybody gets stuck in medicine at some point. Nowadays, we have a lot more precautions and prevention things and stuff. But anyway, he said, you know, I thought I had hepatitis, and so then I finally got a blood test, and he had acute leukemia. And he came out and lived 30 days. And it was actually, I had I also had an aunt with acute leukemia in those days who was on the, and they were both on the ward, and Colleen spent pretty much all her time up there. And unfortunately, Rick passed away, and that sort of changed that for us. And uh, I subsequently was accepted um, and looked at dermatology um, residencies, and they had one at Emory, and they had one at the Medical College of Georgia and some others. And they had them in the Navy. And interestingly enough, um, I was accepted at several of them, but the Navy would pay me as a board-certified physician, not as a lowly resident. So and the training was good in all of them, so we thought, well, we'd do the one in the Navy. And so I asked Colleen, did she want to go to the Bethesda in Washington, which might have been my first choice with my politics sort of stuff interest. And, or San Diego, and she thought maybe coming west to San Diego and trying that would be nice. So we came to San Diego in dermatology. Um, I'd like to go back just for a second because it's a question that I have. Physicians, do you self-diagnose? Your friend has this, ends up dying from the leukemia. Do physicians do a lot of self diagnosis? And secondly, are physicians good about getting attention themselves? You, you're asking me to incriminate myself here, <laughs> sir. You know? um, Colleen would, my wife's answer would be, yes, you self-diagnose yourselves, and you are not very good about taking care of yourself. Now, we kind of tend to look after each other, so we do it better than we used to. And 
and in, especially in medical groups and things, we make sure that physicians get their physicals and their testings and those sort of things. In fact, I was just prodded by Mrs. Greenway earlier this year, and after listening for a while, I, I did go in and have had that done. So, and she y- didn't yes. prompt me for these questions. <laughs> but yes, we need to, we try and practice what we preach, but uh, sometimes I think it's just a thing of being so busy and focusing yeah. on all this stuff. Do you ever think of flying yourself? Is that something that ever struck yeah. you? Because you had this interest in it, for um, sure. Yeah, I actually did um, take lessons when I was in medical school and did have almost enough hours to qualify, but ended up not getting a license because I had to go in the military. In the military, we, I didn't have to have a license. I still fly. Um, Colleen said it would be the worst thing I could ever do because she said, you'd want to have an airplane. And I said, yeah. And then she said, you would put patients, if you'd gone somewhere, patients back home would come first and you would try and get there and that would not be a good thing. Uh, physicians are known as notoriously not the best pilots in the world uh, because of other things. So yeah, I'd love to do that and still enjoy that type of thing but just also recognize it's an activity if you're really going to be good at you got to do a lot of it okay now this is kind of full circle because now you're coming back to san diego now i'm coming back to san diego yes what transpires when you get there that's just about 79 or right in that area Mm -hmm. 79 80 yeah uh, come to San Diego to do a dermatology residency at Naval Hospital San Diego or the Pink Palace, a whole bunch of buildings. Uh, military hospitals have been interesting over the years. Uh, when I was in medical school, we did part of our training at the Army Hospital outside of at, uh, Augusta, Fort Gordon, which is still there. Um, the hospital in those days was one story high. Okay, No second story on purpose. Because it had a, one of the halls had a mile, uh, one of the hallways was a mile in length with wards off of it. But after World War I, the decision had been made if we're going to build a hospital, we don't want it destroyed completely. Got to save part of it. So we're going to build it as a maze, a one story building, and there's no way they can bomb it to get rid of it. So they were all one story type things. Here I come to San Diego and I go to a pink hospital, it's painted pink. World War II, only paint you could get was pink. Military took all the gray paint, you know, pink was the primer, and so you ended up with these pink hospitals, you know, both here, Hawaii, and Conus. So we had the pink palace, as we called it, with the different buildings. And I was fortunate enough to train in an excellent dermatology program with all sort of interest, and I developed an interest in the surgical part of dermatology and went in and told my chairman, who'd also been... Uh, a good friend and, and of course was a Navy physician um, that I was really interested in the surgical part and I'd like to go to Madison, Wisconsin and train in skin cancer under the premier gentleman in the world, uh, Fred Mose, who had developed a Mose surgery technique at the University of Madison, at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And he said yes. So we had to drive from San Diego to Madison. You can't buy snow tires in San Diego, California. They have to order them for you out of L.A. So everybody's going south, and we're driving north. So we go, and uh, I did a fellowship with Fred Mose at the um, University of Wisconsin in Madison where I was exposed to probably every type of skin cancer in the world. And in those days, it was the end of the line place, so we had lots lots of people and very challenging, but uh, an excellent physician. He was not a dermatologist. He had been a general surgeon that got interested in skin cancer in uh, I was fortunate enough to be trained by him. 
that had to be an unbelievable education in itself. And as you are trained, how much time do you spend there with into this program? In those days, um, I spent six months, and we saw um, about 1,600 different difficult skin cancers within that six-month period. It was interesting. Uh, if you had an appointment, you had a day. You didn't have a time. You just had a day. Tuesday, your, your appointment's on Tuesday. Um, if you're going to have surgery, you have to be there before 9 because the surgeries went on and off all day because you'd take tissue and you had a lab to process it and stuff. So we actually had people that would come from all over the world. What sort of hours were you working when you were going through this program? My first day with Fred Mose, I started at 7 a.m., and I went home at 7 p.m. My last day with Fred Mose, I started at 7 a.m., and I went home at 7 p.m. But as you know, if you're going to be good at anything, you really have to have that exposure. Now, we all have to have sleep, and sleep, diet, exercise is all very important, but one can get that in the other 12 hours. So, you know. And I think that it was interesting. I got, you're talking about, I gave a lecture at the, uh, they, they wanted me to speak at one of the leadership conferences that they had as part of the big annual meeting, and they're talking about eight-hour work days and breaks and all this stuff. And uh, I finally... I was sort of the keynote speaker at the end, and I sort of said, this is great. This is why I said, you know, anybody I know that's a leader in any field, eight-hour day doesn't get it. You're not going to get there. So just if, if you want to achieve what you want to achieve, you just have to plan to put in more time than that. And be prepared for that commitment. And be prepared for that commitment, absolutely. So then, as I understand, Dr. Mose offered to have you stay there in Madison. Well, I came back to San Diego and opened the first Mose surgery clinic in San Diego. And Dr. Mose came out for the ribbon cutting and all that. It was the first one in the Naval Hospital in San Diego. The interesting thing is the only space we could find was in the back of the OBGYN clinic, had some operating rooms. And space is always a premium in any hospital. So we had that. But yes, Dr. Mose was retiring and called and asked if I would be interested. And of course, I was honored and was interested, but I was in. I was on active duty in the United States Navy. I mean, it was some interesting times because there were a couple of admirals and senators that would call the house to speak, and Colleen's going, "There's this admiral on the phone, <laughs> there's a senator on the phone," and, and so I was very honored. But the, and it was probably the best decision that the Navy wanted me to go ahead and complete the few months I had. And Dr. Mose, I would have loved to have gone there. It would have been a great career, a great honor. But also during that time, one of the patients that Fred had taken, Fred Mose had taken care of, was a lovely lady from La Jolla, California. When I came back, even though I was at the Navy hospital, she walked in one day and said, I'm your patient. And I wanted to say, you know, at this particular clinic at a Naval Hospital San Diego, I'm not sure. And she said, no, no, it's all been taken care of. You're going to take care of me. And I said, yes, ma'am, I will do that. I did. But it turns out uh, her best friends were the Greens, Cecil and Ida Green. Cecil Green was one of the four founders of Texas Instrument Company. And so we went to dinner with them, and Cecil and Carol and Chuck convinced us that maybe we should stay in San Diego one year, and I should come up to Scripps Clinic and set something up. If it didn't work out, then maybe I could go back to Madison. And so we thought, well, we'll try it for a year and see what happens. So I went up to Scripps and uh, opened up a surgery, skin cancer surgery clinic there. Okay, now you've taken this one-year trial... In San Diego, what happens next? Um, actually goes very well. Um, I ended up receiving a number of really challenging patients, which is kind of what I 
was interested in from both the dermatologists and the surgeons at Scripps, but suddenly also from out the entire Southwest area, in part because somebody called Dr. Moses' office in Wisconsin, and he'd say, where do you live? And go see Dr. Greenway at Scripps Clinic. So it went very well. Uh, Colleen actually came in and ran my laboratory for me. Part of the requirement when I did my fellowship, because it was mainly men in those days, was that the wife come in and learn to run the lab. So she did. Cryostats in those days were a little different. As she will tell you, the most important thing she did is she trained a young corpsman named Manny. And Manny is still with me after all these years. So her glory in that whole arena is she trained the young guy that is, runs my lab and has forever and is one of the, probably the top one in the world doing that. And I would think that Colleen's background and then being part of this, you know, when you come to San Diego, that serves you well, too, because this it's not just a job. This is a life. This is a lifestyle. This is a, a life's work. If you don't have a partner that understands that and gets that and is really a partner with you and all those things, I can't imagine that that can work. Oh, absolutely. She has been a partner and continues to be. And being a nurse, I think, had, had a real value for that, both in understanding and, and also assisting. And, you know, I get stopped all the time. I get calls all the time. And uh, I can only remember one instance where she got agitated. Um, phone rang about one thirty one morning. And uh, I answered the phone, and it was uh, a lady, an elder lady named Arlene. And uh, Arlene said, Dr. Greenway, I need a chest X-ray. And I said, okay, Arlene, did you fall? No. I said, are you having any chest pain? No. Are you having any trouble breathing? No. And Colleen's going, is that Arlene on the phone? (laughs) (laughs) She'd known Arlene. And so I went through my list of things that one would normally ask. There was negative to all of them. And I finally said, Arlene, why do you need a chest X-ray? And she said, you know, I couldn't sleep, and I was just up looking at my stuff and my medical record, and it's time for my routine chest X-ray. But that's the only instance I can remember anywhere in my career that perhaps Colleen got a little agitated with. She said, you need to tell Arlene to call somebody else. Because as physicians, we're used to getting called all the time. It doesn't matter. That's what we do, and we live for it, and it's all wonderful. Well, I can understand why Colleen might have been upset with Arlene. (laughs) Tell me, too, about the the Mohs procedure that that you studied yeah. under. Yeah, Fred Mohs got interested in skin cancer and, and developed a technique that uh, eventually had his name on it. It started out uh, as what we call chemosurgery, where you'd put a little chemical on the skin on the tumor, um, and that would fixate it, and then you remove it surgically and process it and look at the edges. Over the years, it developed where Perhaps we didn't need the chemical, we could use a local anesthetic instead. So what it involves is removing the part of the skin cancer that you see, and then you take a thin layer around it, somewhat like uh, a pie crust being around a pie. And you take that, and the goal is to look at every single cell or every single piece of that outer pie crust. And to do that, then you have to put it in smaller pieces and you put dyes on the edges and you make slide, glass slides out of it and all fits together like a jigsaw puzzle somewhat. 
and you're looking at the cells at the outer edge because normally the cells grow in either a solid fashion or with tentacles before they get around to metastasizing. But, and you try and develop that, and it allows you two things. One is precise examination of the margin. And one of the reasons the cure rate's so high is the same person who's doing the surgery, the surgeon, is functioning as the surgeon taking it out, but also as the pathologist looking at it under the microscope. And as we know in any technique, the more times you pass things along, the more chances for error. So having the same person do that increases the cure rate, and it also gives us the ability to take out as little tissue as we can, which is extremely important too. So you've started this center. Uh, the year goes great. Now you've made a permanent decision to stay and... The three th- sort of pillars in medicine. One is taking care of patients, and that's certainly the best part of my job and what we all do. There are two other things that are extremely important, and and one is teaching, uh, education, because you want to teach the next generation because they have to take care of you, if nothing else, but bring that along. And the third is research, where you develop new things. So I was very blessed. I started a couple of courses. I started a graduate medical education fellowship in 1984, we were right to take one dermatologist from all the world in those days, and now it's up to three, and they come spend a year with you and learn the most surgery and the advanced techniques. So I had that, and then I also started a little anatomy course in 1984 that I thought would last two or three years. And This is our 37th year. Again, we have physicians come from all over the world um, that we teach that in San Diego. And then um, there was a drug that came out called interferon. And I was the first one to use it in skin cancer, basal cell carcinoma in the world in 1985. Um, so I had the ability at Scripps Clinic to do both excellent patient care, teach, and do medical research. And so that was extremely important because those things will help keep you, keep you at the top of your game. First of all, these disciples or that come from these programs, they're all over the world, I would think, now. as they. Yeah, I have 56 now that I've trained that are mainly from the States, but also all over the world. I have one in Saudi Arabia and several, three in Australia and several others around, so yes. We always talk about paying it forward. I mean, that, and those people will then hopefully go on and, and teach also and right. do the same sort of thing. Some of those you... actually have their own training programs now where they teach the younger doctors and stuff, so yes. And this has grown in San Diego now. Scripps has become, you tell me. Um, well, when I first started with our medical group, uh, we had under 200 physicians. Now we have over 900. We have five, five, five hospitals. Um, we're doing a, a cancer research with MD Anderson that we do. It was interesting when MD Anderson came out, they always come out and look if you're going to join with them and see if your programs and how they are. And, and we're an integrated medical group, which means the doctors all work together. We're not in a into our own different private practices. And an integrated medical group, I think, offers the best of care to the patient. Um, but they came out and looked at all our programs in cancer, and there were two of them that they decided maybe we did a little more than they did. Uh, one was our bone marrow transplant. Jim Mason has a tremendous bone marrow transplant program. And the other was our melanoma and skin cancer program because we just, I'd been there so long and we had so many contacts and just do so many patients. As this grows, You've been able to still kind of have that personal touch, too, because there's been a lot through the building of this where Scripps is right now that I'm sure there's a lot of administrative work. There's a lot of things that you have done. How does that affect your ability to still touch people, which to me is, along with your great medical expertise, that's what really 
makes somebody the physician that you are? Well, you want to be the physician that you want as a physician when you're the patient. That's always been my goal, and you end up giving back, and patients always come first. But when you're with a group and an entity, you want to make that entity better too. So I had the opportunity to be the chairman of dermatology for a few years and ran this part of that. And um, In 2000, in 2000, 2001, we were kind of struggling with managed care that had come along. You'd see more patients make less money, so the volume didn't make any sense in the way the system was set up in those days. And we had been a, in those days we were for-profit, and we needed to go back under the non-for-profit umbrella with the parent Scripps Corporation. And, and so I was asked to come in and, and lead that. So I actually took uh, about three and a half years off from my practice, sort of to be the CEO, but, you know, we had a team, so I just kind of was leading. I mean, I still saw patients two days a week. We started at 6 in the morning and went to 1, and they were busy, and I still had my team. So I did that for a few years and then helped with their foundation in terms of philanthropic funds. But I've always um, had patient care as the main tenet of what I do, so that's kind of been my goal. During this period of time, you become... Aware of Bighorn. Yeah. I and how up. does that come about? Well, I, you know, I run into these two guys named R.D. Hubbard and Jim Colbert and invited to come out and play in this tournament called the Card. Colbert Allred, Dr. Allred Ed, who's a great guy too, and, and then R.D. And so I'd come out and played the tournament some and really enjoyed the people, I think, as much as anything else. And, and the course and stuff too, but the people and... And so it was kind of suggested in 1999 I might become a member. I know those suggestions. <laughs> you know those suggestions. Um, and I've been a member of a number of golf clubs, uh, Rancho Santa Fe and built in 1929, Old Classic Club and Fairbanks Ranch and uh, Crosby and some and one down in Borrego and had the opportunity to travel and play golf in a lot of different places. So we joined Bighorn in 1999. What was your first impression of Vardy Hubbard when you met him? I think... The first impression you could kind of tell was that he wants everybody to be a winner. And you see that in people that are winners, if they really, really are. They want everybody else to be a winner, too. So I think that was one of my first initial impressions. When you start your working, as you still are, very hard and a lot of hours... You get to spend some time down here in the desert and spend some time with Mr. Hubbard and playing some golf. What other recollections do you have of those early years when you first came here? Everybody's extremely warm and friendly. And the other thing I noticed pretty early on is everybody here is different. And they're all successful, and they did it on their own. And that was one interesting thing I liked because I was raising two boys. Um, I could kind of tell they probably weren't going to go into medicine. Dad was really working on it. You know, they had other interests and stuff, which is great. But it was great for me to be able to expose them to the members at Bighorn. Just the exposure, just like they had. And early on, um, of course, Jim Colbert's bigger than life. And, uh, of course, he introduces me as the former flight surgeon for the Blue Angels, which was totally incorrect. Uh, <laughs> I did other groups, but not I knew the guys in the Blue Angels, but I was not their doctor. <laughs> so, okay. so for Jim, the record. For yeah. the record, Jim had to back off on that a little bit. And then I, 
you know, one day there's a um, new golf bag on my cart with my name on it. Oh, where'd that come from? I said, well, this guy named Jim Kagan decided he'd just do that for you. I said, really? And so, you know, the people are just wonderful people. You know, I enjoyed the golf, uh, which I do. And, and people say if I'd practice more, I'd be a little better, which is probably true if I had time to do that. And I maybe at some point. But um, just met a lot of really, really wonderful people. We... Um, we're sitting at dinner one night with R.D. and Joan Dale. And some people. And R.D. had always said, you know, whenever you get ready to buy a house, let me know. And, you know, and of course, Colleen opens her mouth and says she's ready to buy a house. And two weeks later, we own a house. Well, again, I think partially the reason for doing these podcasts is exactly what you're talking about. And that is that self-made people with interesting stories. And if you just sit down at a coffee table here and listen to people, you're going to learn something. And whether that's uh, your sons or whether I know my kids too, when they come out here to be able to just be exposed and listen, uh, you're going to be educated. Yeah. I mean, some of the more prominent moments in life that we learn from, or we don't get that out of a textbook. Also, I'd like you to touch on, and this year it happens on February 7th and 8th here at Bighorn. We do, or Scripps does, in conjunction with Bighorn, uh, these screenings. Tell me how that started, a little background on that. Well, again, it's part of giving back. You want to take care of people. And the key in cancer is early diagnosis, whether it's of the skin, of your colon, or wherever. It's to get it early, because if you get it early, then the cure rates are just so mo- so much better. We had started screening lifeguards on the beach in San Diego. They're high risk. They get more sun exposure. Early on, there wasn't as much emphasis on prevention and sunscreens. So we had done that. And then out of that, we had looked at other things. And so I mentioned something to R.D. about maybe coming out here to do that, and he thought it was a wonderful idea. So for a number of years now, we brought a group of dermatologists, the ones I'm training and some others, and a big contingent of nurses um, and staff, and we do skin screenings for two days where we take all the members, and it's under a program with the American Academy of Dermatology. So um, we'll have you come in and we'll examine your entire skin if you want us to, or just the head and neck. And uh, if there's anything that needs follow-up or abnormal, we'll give you a form and suggest that you can see your dermatologist or your doctor back where you live or wherever to get that taken care of. And and these screenings have saved lives. They're like all screenings because you pick things up early. And we'll usually pick one or two melanomas up a year uh, on the members here. And so, yes, I would say that they've saved lives. I must mention that uh, one year RD, actually the week after the screening, shows up in my office with another member from here who did not make it to the screening who had a melanoma in his back. And so Mr. Hubbard's helped to set up those screenings. And also um, the thing I've noticed over the years, he has a tremendous interest in all of the members here and how they're doing. And as I said before, in addition to wanting to be winners, he's very interested in them taking good care of themselves too so he's always um saying if can we get so and so seen by so and so in this specialty and we can do that but he also has has me how people are doing but he also knows that we have rules and HIPAA and things so he he doesn't want to interfere with anything 
but he's really interested in the health of, I think, all of the members here and being sure they're taken care of appropriately by their physician or specialty consultants if needed. Yeah, I think that's underrated here or and underestimated, certainly on the out within the Valley, is that how much he does care about the people and the community and wants to give back as a philanthropist, but also in directing the club to be supportive of so many charities and endeavors like that. But he genuinely cares about the people. He wants them to be well, if you will. He does. He, he really, really does. And one year, I think the insurance premiums for the employees went up dramatically. And my understanding is that that cost was not passed on to the members or to the employees, that RD covered that cost out of his pocket. And that was a significant cost for all these employees for every employee that year. And he didn't. He doesn't talk about that. To have no lapse in medical insurance during right. that time, I've heard the same story. And these are um, unreported things that uh, that mean so much. And right. and without the need for adulation. Or oh yeah, no, no, no. And it, it kind of helps set the tone. And and Colleen talks about and I'll just um, that Joan Dale Hubbard helps set the tone for the ladies. There's no pretentious type thing and everybody's just who they are and down to earth and, and that's a wonderful thing for a club for you to be relaxed and be yourself and stuff and as you know we don't have any rules you know unless you need you, know, yes. you, you can't play with a practice ball you know, yeah well so or, you know it's, it's the old thing of you have to play fast and be respectful of the employees right, right. yeah absolutely so uh, i think it's it's a wonderful club and i think you feel healthier when you're here Hugh, with all your accomplishments and everything that you've done for in your career, for others, what drives you today? Well, I mean, I think um, I've accomplished some things. My mother, who's 94, and um, told me about three years ago that I really had accomplished things. And, you know, we all look at life from our own perspective. And from her perspective, in those days, 91, her son was quoted in the Reader's Digest. And for that generation, so for her, I'd become successful and stuff. I think it's a package of just have the skills and the ability to be able to give. And I love it, and I do it. And I, I do have to back off. Colleen says I could practice 24 hours a day, which is probably true. But to be my best, I have to take care of myself and stuff. So I think... What drives me is just to be able to contribute. I think uh, places here like Bighorn uh, allow me to be the best I can be. Um, you mentioned the charity work and things. Um, the Mr. Hubbard got the community together several years ago, and we raised $5 million to build the Bighorn Mosin Dermatology Center at Scripps Clinic. That facility and the money that we use to train young doctors has allowed me to continue at a level that probably I couldn't otherwise. So while it's an honor for me to give to Bighorn and help when I can, and we have, you know, I'm not the only doctor here. We have a number of other wonderful physicians. I played in a golf tournament with one today um, who'd had a heart transplant, you know? And, you know, 20 years ago, you'd never seen this. And so the advances in medicine are so great. 
and the people that help us do that. So it's my pleasure to, to be able to help. It's my joy to be here at Bighorn. And I thank Bighorn for all the things that they've done for me to allow me to be the best that I can be. What, uh, who are the people that have had the greatest influence on your life? Um, my father, of course. Um, his best friend, my physician. Um, Dr. Mose at the University of Wisconsin. And I would have to say there are a number of people here at Bighorn, uh, starting with R.D. Hubbard, uh, again, wanting everybody to be a winner. Um, I think you've been a, bit, an, a positive influence on me. Um, and I hate to start naming names because I'll forget somebody. I don't want to do that. But Jim Colbert, Jim Gagan. Um, and the thing that impresses me also is the number of young people that come in. I mean, I run into them as they're being introduced, but I'm extremely pleased that this club continues to attract young people who also all have their story and will allow us here at Bighorn just to continue to be better and better. And to your point, when, when I ask this question, I think of it myself. And because of the people that we are exposed to here, this answer changes for me on an ongoing basis because someone new might come into my life that then has an influence on my life. This is not an end of the story. Of course not. There's people all the time that come in and influence your life. All the time. Um, Bob Howard, who's a member here. Bob is my most expensive house call ever. <laughs> Explain. He used to live in Rancho Santa Fe, near where we are. I get a call one night from Peggy Jacobs over there that Bob's had a problem. And can I come? And, of course, bam, I'm gone. Get there before the EMS. And he just had a little, like a lot of us do when we get a little older, a little syncopal episode, and it turned out we checked him out, and he's fine. And of course, he's not about to go to the hospital. And as a physician, you have to be the one to overrule the EMTs if the patient doesn't want to go. But anyway, so I thought, well, I need to call his heart doctor, John Carson. And I'm looking for my cell phone, and I can't find my cell phone. I two of them. Just, I know. Uh, <laughs> one is encrypted with medical stuff. So, but anyway, so, um, but anyway, so I borrowed Bob's house phone and called my house phone, oh, Colleen. And I said, Colleen, can you bring me my cell phones? Because I need to call Dr. Carson. Or just give me the number. She said, Well, um, I think they were on top of your car when you left, so they're all over the driveway. <laughs> I also want to ask you another question. And that is, we've had a, a number of people here that have dealt with some illnesses, some cancer issues. Uh, and um, I think their, their life and how they've dealt with these things, we can all learn from. Is there anything that you can tell us regarding those sorts of situations that can help people that either... Uh, are dealing with it or know people who are dealing with these sorts of issues? Um, well, certainly we've had several people that had melanomas that we picked up with the skin screening, and they've been very important in encouraging their friends and others to have uh, skin screening. Um, Jim Colbert, years ago, had prostate cancer, and we took care of him at Scripps. Uh, one of my good friends was his physician, and, and Jim talks about this, so it's common knowledge. And Jim... 
then took this and helped with the PGA Tour and raised money for prostate. He had the birdies program he and Arnold did. So I think Jim has taken his experience, which was extremely important and critical in his life, and he's used that experience to help others. So I think you see that, and he supports a number of the things. So I think Jim Colbert is a classic example of using his skills and encouraging everybody else uh, to be sure that they get checked to take care of themselves. Okay, and, and that's really the biggest thing, is to be diligent about being checked. Yeah, to be diligent about being checked. And to be honest, men aren't as good. Ladies are much, much better. Um, and a lot of times we think that something's not really significant and we don't want to bother somebody. I'd much rather be bothered than for you and I have to have the discussion, well, we wish we'd have gotten to this five years before type sort of thing. So we're all responsible adults. We all can help take care of ourselves. None of us are going to live forever, but we want quality to be just as important as quantity in life. So I think that... Uh, it's good to have these other people that will support us. Uh, you have the BAM tournament out here that Selby leads. It's wonderful. Uh, that's kind of come out of some of her experiences that she talks about. But just look at the benefit that that has for the community and the people here at Bitcoin. And also, Hugh, I'd like to ask you another question. What is your leadership philosophy? I tell my staff in my office and my young doctors and stuff, if you're doing what you think is the best for that patient, patient person you're taking care of at that time, I will support you. I may tell you tomorrow we're going to do it a different way. But if, as long as you're out there achieving, doing what you think is your best, I'll have your back and support you, and we're all going to learn from that. And I think... You also lead by people watch you. It's not what you say. I mean, everybody in my office, my nurses, they know exactly where I'm going with them. Talk. You know, it's just how you do it yourself. And I tell my young doctors, you know, today everything's on a computer. So you got to do it right because if you don't, it'll, somebody will come get it off a computer. So if you're not going to do it right, do it for that reason, but just to do the right thing. One last question, which I ask everybody that does these podcasts, and that is, what advice would you give the 20-year-old Hugh Greenway today? I would say to be true to yourself and go achieve what you want to achieve. And you live in the greatest country in the world. It has its ups and downs and its problems, but it's still the greatest country, and it has the greatest people, and they'll be there to support you and help you. So just do your best and find a group like we found here at Bighorn who will support you and in whom you can be yourself. Hugh, I just want to thank you so much for doing this today. I'm going to embarrass you a bit, and that is the lives that you've touched throughout your career and throughout your life, but in this community, you are the patron saint of, of uh, this community. And the way that you conduct yourself, the friendships that you've made and to make us all feel better, the lives you've saved, that's what you do for <laughs> your job. But it, it is the person that you are is really what we all value so much. And I really want to thank you for doing this today and the best 
moving forward. Well, thank you. And I want to thank you for coming up with this concept to do this. And um, as we've discussed, I look forward to especially hearing the podcast that's going to be about Marty. Well, we've made a deal, and we've I'm made certainly going to take out. I'll do my part of that. Hugh, thanks again. Thank you. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Bighorn Podcast with interesting people and their fascinating stories. And thanks again to Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers, a member of our community for over 70 years, for their continuing support.